0: and welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research.
1: I'm Georgia. And I'm Anna. And today with us, we've got, newly, Dr. Nad Abdullah. Hooray, welcome and congratulations
0: on hey.
2: passing your defense. <laughs> Thank you. It's really exciting, because I think this is the first
0: time I'm officially addressed as doctor, <gasps> so it's quite special. Oh. If, <laughs> yeah, Harry, I'm quite not used to it, so. It's an honor to be able to do it. So um, yeah, please tell us a little bit about yourself and your research. Thank you, okay. Well, I'm gonna
2: start with asking you, anthropologically speaking, what exactly do you want to find out about myself?
0: Oh, uh, it's a big question. Anthropologically speaking, uh, I suppose it'd be nice to know uh, where you're from, how you came to be at Manchester, what drove you to do a PhD? Okay, so I come
2: from Yemen, and I've been doing anthropology since undergraduate and um, continued with masters in Australia and then doing my PhD here uh, actually before getting into anthropology altogether I was doing software engineering and French literature wow. in, in my home country Yemen and because my dad got a job offer in Kuwait so I I thought for a moment that you know Kuwait is richer than Yemen but for sure they will have French literature so I'm gonna go there and surprise surprise you know not every country actually has everything you think of so we went there and there was no uh, French literature so I had to make my you know choose something else so I rebooted restarted with international studies and history um, so did, did I think six months of that so how I got into anthropology is because I took a, a core an elective elective course. I don't know how to say that, I forgot the right word. But it's a, like a side course that you take <coughs> with your major. And I really liked what it talks about because it's about human nature, human habits and you your own observation. And that's pretty much how my life was. I never liked sticking to one group. I always like to mix with the people that no one likes to mix with them and understand why they are not integrated for instance in any class or society so it was quite a a habit that i had so i i found out that i can use that you know in a more academic way to understand properly about so many differences that we have or also similarities Mm. so it continued with me for Uh, undergraduate and then I went on for a master's in visual anthropology because I wanted to represent these stories visually because I think that's the best way that I can connect with people not in academia I wasn't interested in you know speaking to academics I wanted other people because the whole point for me was you know if I learn about people's specialties and lives and you know reasons of what they do why they do what they do what's the point of keeping it confined in a university environment whereas what's really important is for those outside the university that actually makes a difference in you know in how society runs once they understand you know the other the others perspectives so my point was to use visuals to quite quite you know like disseminate anthropological knowledge and then from there I realized I might need to be more of a specialist. That's how I got into anthropo- like PhD in anthropology because I thought, well, you know, it's not something that I can just do right now with the kind of knowledge that I had back then. That was a belief that I had, you know, that I thought maybe if I become more of an expert in what I do, it will give me a bit more of the kind of right tools so that when I sit and talk, I know exactly how to tackle, you know, sensitive topics or get to know one culture in depth so that I become more of an expert in it. So to say, that's how I got into the PhD. And yeah, there you go. Now I'm done. (laughs) So let's see what's Next. next.
0: And so uh, your PhD is about uh, it's about Muslim artists in Kuwait, and specifically it's Shia yes. uh, Muslim artists. So that is quite a, a specific community. Can you tell us about how you sort of got into researching that community?:
2: Sure. So my PhD is in social anthropology here at the University of Manchester, and I'm doing it with visual media, meaning that I have to use again visual methods. Um, as research tools as well and uh, analysis so my, my research was on or still is on Shia women artists in Kuwait I mean it, can, it still includes men mm-hmm. but because of, I am a woman and I, I am a Muslim so it's a, a logical more right. easier integration for me to get with women than men so I use that um, as, a, as a way to get quicker access and learn more about what women have to say and it's quite an interesting thing because um, when I went to research I my idea was to go and research uh, male artists singers Mm. and religious ones Mm -hmm. so it was a completely different research but when I went there uh, the the war on on my country Yemen broke up and there was a lot of you know instability family-wise because of what's going on so emotionally I was so drained and Mm. to to be able to, uh, you know, like function very well, like you know, to go out and do research and interviews, it, res- it requires a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. Especially that I want to break into the men's sphere and they're religious, conservative men, so it's not going to be that simple. And it, re- it required me to be every day out and talking and network- networking and all that, and I didn't have that energy, so I ended up just sticking to women's areas, women's uh, gatherings because it was easier for me. I would just sit in a corner and just relax listen to what they have to say and then I as I'm doing that but I didn't do it because I wanted to research women I just did it because the easiest way to get access to men is through women so I would research with I would sit with women and you know while when they have free time I can quickly ask them a question oh do you know how to link me to this guy or this person or that person and if, when they have time they will quickly just make a call or you know give me a number and all that because what at uh, the environment I was in they were Preparing for an art exhibition, so they were very busy. So I was just hanging around, helping them while they're preparing for their exhibition. And, in like, you know, whenever I find it a right chance, I would just quickly ask, Okay, do you know this person? Can I get access to this, uh, you know, singer? And then I realized that uh, while doing that, I realized there's a lady who's working on statues. Mm. And to me, it was a very interesting kind of art because in Islam, I, I'm talking in general. Um, the general understanding that uh, depiction of figures and uh, face, faces of holy people is, is not allowed. And that's a general understanding. So to see uh, a very religious sect is doing exactly that, that was quite interesting. And they're women, and the work is very demanding physically. And it was actually one woman who was the, the, the head of all that. So I was thinking, you know, that's quite an interesting thing. So I started sticking with her more than other women, and by time I just, after four months into the field work, because in anthropology we 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 take up to a year, I just thought it's too late to go back to the men and do whatever I want to do. So I just emailed my supervisors like, there's a change in plan. (laughs) I'm noticing there's a more lucrative topic here because. What's the likelihood that there will be another anthropologist female who can do what I'm doing right now? Because the woman is already in her 60s and she's the one who started this wave of figure art figure art or mm. statue art, religious ones. And, you know, her, her she's not written in history books. And so I think I'm into something really great here. So that's how I made the shift.
0: Wow, that's super interesting. And you mentioned that your thesis or your work has to involve an element of... Uh, visual cultures of visual analysis does that form part of your methodology do you use photography or how do you approach that yeah um, so as I said so I
2: I went to field work thinking that I will be uh, working with men Mm. and artists so generally speaking in an Arab Muslim culture men are okay to be visually depicted like Mm. in photographs or video but whereas women that's a quite sensitive topic so it depends where and who And what I ended up doing is, you know, uh, working with very conservative women. That means depicting them visually is next to impossible. You know, it's not allowed because some of them cover their face completely. That means they don't want to be seen. So I had no right, you know, to even ask Mm because I understand that culture. So I wouldn't even dare to ask, "Eh, can I take a photo of you? So, I had to use them in a different way. So, instead of taking field notes because people felt uncomfortable with me taking notes, I would just take my camera with me. Or, you know, if we had a conversation, I'll take a photo. That would help me to remember the context. And I've used it as a research method Mm. in that sense that uh, it will make me remember what was going on. And then, because I kept on carrying the camera with me all the time without using it, women started being. Uh, like encouraging me why don't you take a photo of this so they started instructing me to what they think is okay for me to photograph Mm -hmm. and that was a very like a great uh, learning process to see they're not against the camera they actually wanted me to use a camera but in specific ways that I wasn't aware of Mm -hmm. so that's way you you get to learn so much about culture as well of how they instruct you how to use a machine as the camera and then uh, later on, I think what happened is that they noticed because it's a very uh, conservative community and they're to the extent that the, many of the girls, young women, are not allowed to go into institutes to study uh, arts or photography or any of, th- any of that because they will be exposed to men. So having someone like me coming, no, like having the skills of, of, of a photographer, they asked me to teach them. So I ended up teaching them and running courses for them and you know teaching them how to edit videos and take photographs of so many things so they started including lots of that into their own artwork
1: it's fascinating Yeah.
0: yeah that is that is super fascinating yeah
1: and how do you think this kind of very personal experience of building this network for yourself and participating very much in this community you know impacted your project and yourself and you know looking back at yourself when you started this project because it looks like, it sounds like it was a transformative experience really finding out about this community
2: indeed i mean i don't have the right words you know i became i became so attached to them because once you're put in a place where you are so useful and so instrumental and once you leave that space and you come back to where you're nothing, you know, as when I mean like, you know, going back to the, the, the department sitting down writing your research, no one knows who you are, no one cares, no one, you know. That made me realize so much about how much one can, you know, contribute in helping uh, a society in the ways that works for them. Mm. I Maybe if I went with the agenda of me going and, you know, I want to liberate these women who are under men's control, you know, I wouldn't have probably got the same access but because I went and I went with their agendas like with what works for them and just kept that tool to be mobilized as they wanted so they ended up teaching me how they want to be liberated in a way that works for them mm. not for someone like me who comes from a completely different background so they didn't want like you know we're having this uh, concept as docile agent by Sabah Mahmoud, who speaks about you know not every liberation is exactly the same western concept of liberation there are people who want to be liberated but in their own way Mm -hmm. so like these these muslim women probably wanted liberation but they didn't want to under the title of leaving religion or taking off the veil or you know going and studying with men and not being under the obligation of answering to any of their male relatives but you know they wanted to be under all of that but still do something within that Mm -hmm. and that kind of transformed me so much in being a bit more sensitive and learning about how you can still um, make a change by not being too radical in how you say things <laughs> or do things.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really that's a fascinating perspective. So we're we're both historians, mm. so mm. we don't get to have that same kind of sort of extremely personal interaction with our research. But when you look at sort of historical change it's not always incredibly radical you know overnight shift as much as it can be sort of these actions from within communities that that build over time has it made you reflect on sort of your own relationship with religion or sorry if that if that's a personal no. question we can cut it by the way no
2: no 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 absolutely not i it made me reflect on so many things because um, you know one, because you, you're, you're, you, com, you're get, you get confronted by so many aspects that you didn't maybe quite uh, accept. And I'll, I'll admit, I went with this mindset, not that I had it consciously, but I don't come from a conservative family, religiously speaking. I mean, I'm a Muslim, but I, I come from a family where they didn't allow me to do things because it's men, you know. So I came with this mentality that, you know, these women are really oppressed, you know. <laughs> And I really do not know how they're living their lives. So I was looking at them with a pity, with an eye of pity, mm. to, so to say. So in a way, getting or dwelling or diving a bit deeper into their lives and just being that silent observer in a way, but being still useful and not putting so much of my own input, or just making, I don't make like, I I tried my best not to make any opinions about this is, you know, this is really not right. You shouldn't let your father talk to you like that. I didn't, I tried my best not to to interfere (laughs) in that sense. Mm -hmm. So it allowed me, it gave me the privilege of actually learning Mm -hmm. about what, how they are not that oppressed in a way, you know? (laughs) Okay. Because once, once you start to see what they're suffering from is something that I've suffered from, but in different things. But not it's not going to be religion, mm-hmm. but something completely different. So maybe my family were, inc- you know, they, they were controlling me about which friends I should have because they were afraid of maybe drugs or stuff, something else. Mm-hmm. So if I saw that as okay now, why to why should I see something else as not okay for someone else? Because it's different perspectives in mm-hmm. the end. So in terms of religion, it's quite fascinating because I don't come from a Shia background, so I'm not a Shia, mm-hmm. and. Um, my family is Zaidi, so it's a sect in between Sunnah and Shia, and in Islam there's so many sects anyway between Sunnah and Shia as mm-hmm. well. So we're not practicing Zaidi, but we came from a background that you know it's a it's Zaidi background, but in 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 practice I was raised mm-hmm. as a Sunni, so it did actually change so much of my prejudices that I had towards some religious things, you know, and made me think rethink about what could possibly be right and wrong and Mm. how one should just accept in a way or respect i wouldn't say accept i would say more respect someone else's beliefs if that works for them Mm. then let it be as long as it doesn't hurt me it doesn't stop me from doing whatever i think is good for me yeah so it did actually transform i think in a i would think of it in a positive way you know once you you don't see uh, religion in the same light. You don't think of it as black and white.
0: Mm.
2: <laughs> you're right, I'm wrong. I'm going to heaven, you're going to hell. That thing, because that's how many people are raised like, in the Arab world. So that was challenged, and yeah, I'm happy about it.
0: <laughs> yeah, it sounds actually like, just from a sort of subject positionality standpoint, that you were in quite a unique relationship with the women that you were working with in that you had many things in common and then many differences it's not like the completely old-fashioned model of anthropology where a white guy sails to an island and sort of observes and writes down his observations as if he's looking at you know animals or aliens but instead you were finding common ground at the same time as sort of exploring those differences that's so fascinating
1: and in it of itself kind of thinking about art that does depict persons does seem quite empowering in the kind of context that we're talking about so um about this artist how did she come to make those statues how like how did it come about do you know she was always a craftsperson, so mm-hmm. she
2: started in 2004. Before that, she had a longer like, history with how she... because Shia normally like to make um, sermons in their mm-hmm. houses, and they incorporate theatre. So she was a theatre person. She comes from a theatre background in a way, so she trains artists, to, uh, female um, actors, and, you know, a uh, sermon with, with a theatre uh, piece so that way they attract more people to come and attend uh, the religious sermons Mm -hmm. and make them more impactful and you know it's quite interesting so they use a lot of these kind of art uh, art um, uh, techniques so she saw she started then when she started that many people started copying her in the past Mm -hmm. and then she started feeling that she want to do more Mm -hmm. and she kept on doing more in so many things one of them started with the just thinking she wish if she can have um, she can have, I don't know, have or half, has bad English. <laughs> uh, if she can have the uh, a statue incorporated into the whole scene, so that after the th- uh, the women finish acting, because it's only women gathering, once they go, she wants something to stay there, so women can go and just pay, like you know, pray or mm, take blessings from that statue, you know, in, in a way. So it's, it could be like a visual reminder that stays there. So she started working for four months on this uh, statue that she created and it made such a huge impact that people from all over Kuwait were visiting her night and day because it was so new, so different and it left such a great impact on people that they started having dreams and things and so many things happening to them and miracles and all that. So it was so impactful that uh, she did it again with another statue and again another three statues and then more five and then it became an exhibition that people asked her to get out of the house and do an actual exhibition and then she started making uh, like a whole exhibition just let's say on a life of one individual maybe the prophet for Mm -hmm. instance so she would make his life from birth to death in the form of different scenes through statues and incorporate she incorporates sounds and uh, sound like music and smell. So people because they're not used to that, they were they they had a huge impact on how they react to them, and it's as if it's real. So it's
0: fascinating. And it was mainly a positive reaction, even though mm-hmm. it was it, like depictions of the prophet. Yeah, mm. it's there because I think certainly for those of us outside of Islam our understanding is that that's something that's not really okay. Did you get an understanding of what it was that, that made it okay? So because the, the media only shows one sect
2: mm-hmm. and that's predominantly is going to be Sunni Islam mm-hmm. and within Sunni Islam not every subsect within Sunni or because in Sunni there's still like four schools yeah. of thought you know mm-hmm. not all of the four schools are represented and usually the, the, the focus is only in one of the sub-sects sub within mm-hmm. Sunni that are radicalized. So the focus mainly draws, goes back to that kind of thought or school of mm-hmm. thought and neglects everyone else. Mm-hmm. So not everyone else believed like that kind yeah. of sub-thought.
0: Yeah.
2: And that's where the issue is. But mm-hmm. in the beginning, when she started it, it's even though they're Shia and they're different, some are still affected by this general conception of no depiction. Mm-hmm. So she she faced a lot of um, at, no, I wouldn't say attacks like not not violent attacks, but like people opposing her work because mm-hmm. it's <laughs> non-religious, you know. And then she started going and validating the work, and in Arabic we say fatwa, mean getting you know like a validation from bigger scholar to come and visit the work and see for himself if that's okay. Mm-hmm. so she invited uh, a number of uh, religious scholars big ones in Chia scholars to come and look and see is this okay and if you know and then she would say her point of view why this is should be okay mm-hmm. but then they end up seeing it and they said well there's nothing wrong with it because the whole point is for you to to you know translate a message of peace and love and affection and affect actually mm-hmm. And that works perfectly with whatever you're doing, and I see nothing wrong. So from 2004 until uh, today, it became more prominent, and her work started being copied by so many people, you not know, just in Kuwait, but all uh, Shia neighboring countries. So you would have it in Bahrain, uh, Syria, Iraq, even Iraq. Mm-hmm. You know, So there are lots of Shia people who came, who come specifically to see her work and then copy it you know, once it's copied, they make like better depictions and, yeah, so it's quite interesting.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating, Mm -hmm. actually, especially coming from, you know, a background where you just, as you say, like, so much of my perception of Islam is, is completely coloured by the media and by, you know, particular dominant narratives that do seemingly erase, you know, all the nuance and the complexity of a vast religion. Yeah.
2: I mean like uh, touching on this last point you had, um, it's one of the things that I actively tried avoiding in my thesis and one of the things that I was heavily debating, or not debating but um, defending in the Viva, it was, it was these aspects, these political things that were missing and I was, you know, continuously saying, I'm not saying they're not there, but. Having to focus on them like every other researcher that's done research in, on Shia always goes down the route of uh, you know politics and you know conflicts and whatever you know whatever is popular. But having, having not done that, I was able to learn more about this, the other side that matters the most for people, which is dreams and miracles. And that's one of the biggest contributions my work have, in this, scho- like, scholarly speaking, uh, to the sh- study of Shia and religion, Islamic religion in general. Because they are two things that are very common in Islam, and they're under-researched.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Because, you know, the focus would always mainly be drawn to something completely different.
1: Mm-hmm. Um. So, what would you say was kind of the biggest challenge with you coming into this project? You know, especially considering there were some barriers that needed to be broken, and there were obviously some limitations and um, necessity for sensitivity. You mean during research itself? Yes.
2: Oh, there were lots because you know, again, I'm I'm working with conservative women, so I got exposed to so many things that are so private, you know, when, when you deal with women they gossip a lot <laughs> so I was exposed to so much of the insights of how, what makes them them in a way, and having to make an uh, like a conscious choice between what not to include was the most difficult because there were lots of interesting things I could have added but um, I wouldn't, My my consciousness wouldn't be okay, I won't be able to sleep at night knowing that it's like a form of betrayal, so these things are quite sensitive Uh, like now the thesis is on permanent restriction because i've used few things that i haven't asked permission for Mm
0: -hmm.
2: so if i'm now going well it's not when i start publishing i will actually go and ask for permissions and if i'm denied then i'm not publishing that Mm -hmm. but they're 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 not um, too sensitive but i would say for instance, using a photograph to demonstrate one of the events, that I blurred the faces so no one can see who's who, but still they need to know that I've used that. Mm-hmm. So I'm okay. gonna need to go and get a, you know permission from each individual in the photograph, which by the way I don't know who they are, because <laughs> it was a, a you know like a public event, so it'd be hard to track. But still, like yeah, those those kind of ethical
0: issues are really challenging. Did it take a long time to do your ethical approval form?
2: Um, I think it took a while mm, but I don't think they are because Kuwait is not uh, an area where people are known to be Mm. dangerous like for instance I had friends who couldn't go to Egypt Mm. and they were denied completely uh, access to Egypt so they had to choose somewhere else but in my case it took a while but it actually was a lot quicker than many other people because it has nothing to do with health or children or you know uh, people who are um, like vulnerable, yeah. <laughs> so hopefully it was an easy, easy thing.
0: And how long were you actually on your fieldwork for?
2: A year. So it was literally a year, but because I lived in Kuwait uh, ten years before that, <laughs> so that ten years gave me an idea of what culturally works. Mm. In terms of dress, in terms of attitude, what you, what, you, you, what you can say to kind of make a good connection. You know, I think mm. it's like every other country in the world that you need to have cues and a bit of idea of what could work. Yeah. Like people. an
0: understanding of local manners and yes. yeah. Yeah, that's, um Did you have to ad- adjust things about how you dress? Or? Uh, that's a very good question. So,
2: in Shia religious environments uh, women dress black and uh, like uh, they call them abaya, which is like a big cloth from head to toe mm-hmm. Some would cover the face, but I wouldn't need to cover so in the past before even starting my own research I was curious about the Xi sect. So I would go to their events, but I would wear the abaya because uh, There was no point in me sticking out mm. I'll just wear whatever people wear just to go and sit and you know listen to their sermons and see what is it about um, but with research and I had a discussion about that with my re- one of my supervisors, my main supervisor and I told her, you know, I'm concerned because um, I don't want to wear like them because I'm, my family is still there so they will most likely see me outside wearing exactly what they're wearing and if they see that they might it might create a bit of like breaking trust mm-hmm. in a way. But I told her in the same time, I understand because they're conservative, they will not be comfortable me dressing up the way I dress up. And it's what you're seeing right now is just a long, like a, a dress to the knees and some tight pants and shirt. So, you know, maybe for people here, it's well, they would see this too conservative. But to those women's standards, it's not that mm. conservative. So I didn't want to also be uh, not sensitive for their own sensibilities. But then she, we ended up having a bit of back and forth of discussion what I should wear, what I shouldn't wear. And then she was like, you know, I think you better dress the way you dress, however you dress and stick to it. And let them accept it or not accept it and see how it goes. Because they need to know you're not one of them. Mm -hmm. And they need to understand that you're different, but you are still respectful. So don't wear too tight or don't, you know, wear too short. you know, just be mindful of these things yeah. and um, just do it. It worked, and there were a few challenges, like in the beginning, women would... Uh, they wouldn't say anything, they would just look at you and feel uncomfortable, mm-hmm. and then they would indirectly say to other women who are wearing uh, jeans, don't wear that, you know, this is disrespectful. So I would then end up trying to explain to them, and I would tell them exactly what I had to do. I told them, this I could have worn the abaya, but you will see me without abaya, cause in the end of the day, I don't come from a religious background and that would be considered like lying to you. But if you prefer me to wear it, I will. Mm. Is that okay for you? And then because they understand within a religious community, in that context, if a woman is seen wearing different clothing that's so different, mm. it's not a good sign. Mm. It's my show that you're a hypocrite in a way. So mm-hmm. you're just faking to be religious. In particular spaces. Yeah. yeah. And then right. you're actually not religious, so they will really not trust you. So it was I had to be very mindful of that. So I wanted to just exactly the same way wherever I go. So it took a while for them to accept it, mm-hmm. and they didn't mind it. And then still sometimes I felt they minded it. but as a as again, as ethnographic research um, observation technique, it's also very insightful. It's how people care about. What you wear and how you carry yourself, and how, because I was honest about that, how they that allowed them to trust me a little bit more. It Mm. took a while, but so yeah, it was. It's an ongoing negotiation process.
0: (laughs) Was the sort of cultural differences between you and the women that you were working with? Is that something that they wanted to talk about, or did they prefer to sort of, like you said, sort of not address it directly?
2: Um. Because I wouldn't. Uh, some some of, some of the younger women, because I they know I'm I'm, I'm a student uh, alone in abroad. Mm. So they would try to test what is it like to be alone as a Muslim woman alone abroad because they're scared of that. Mm. And then you know I would try to give them my own experience how it's great and it's normal and it's really not that scary. It's not what you think. No one's going to hurt you. It depends where you go. So there are like few of them who are still finishing high school and are debating on this idea of going and studying abroad, but their families are not allowing. So I would have even mothers coming and speaking to me sometimes asking for advice or like insights more than advice, just saying, what is it like? Do you get, you know, like harassment at all? And the funny <laughs> answer I would say, I actually get more harassed in the Arab world than in the Western world. So. Your daughters would be absolutely safe. It's up, uh, you know. It's absolutely up to them how they carry themselves, what they do, where they go, who they become friends with, you know, and all that. So I think that kind of thing. But mostly no, because also they don't. Most of them don't listen to music. So some of the films I would make, they cannot watch because it has music. But they won't sit and discuss that with me because they know probably that I will not change. Mm. You know. <laughs> so there are a few things that I think it's. Quite obvious that they don't want to discuss, and um, like even dress-wise, like they wouldn't make an effort in. Because from my experience from before, some women, if they see you not dressing exactly like them, they would think because oh that's poor her, we have to advise her. So they would advise me, but that's I'm talking not about Shia, but in general mm-hmm. Muslim women in general. But uh, yeah, in this particular case, it didn't seem to be much uh, of an issue, so they didn't that line of wanting to make me dress better or go to heaven or you know that sort of thing
0: (laughs) so the final thing that we ask each of our guests to do is just to bring along a sort of funny anecdote or story from their research so i was wondering if you had one of those
2: okay so it's going to be an anthropological one That's we're Uh, ready (laughs) let's see how funny it can be but i'll try to explain it as much as i can so uh, I, I told you, I worked with uh, female artists, so some of them are painters and very few actually just one who's a, a statue artist. So the, the story is going to come from a female artist. So one of them in particular who runs a very interesting um, art exhibitions every year. And usually the stories revolve around the martyrdom of the uh, saints or they call them imams. So. In her case, she wanted to focus more on the birth than the sad uh, aspect of the saints. So she focused on the birth of Imam Hassan. Imam Hassan, he's the grandson of Prophet Muhammad. So the paint, she asked, she gathered women to paint different stories, whatever they want, about Imam Hassan. So literally the whole exhibition was was filled with either small uh, figures or paintings or calligraphy work that has something to do with Imam Hassan either his direct sayings or his uh, some let's say he when he helped a child get some water there's a painting about that so different aspects of his life was depicted in in art so i as as i was uh, walking around and admiring the fantastic you know imagination of uh, women and there were men actually but very few artists Um, So I asked her about one painting in particular grabbed my attention I was telling her the exhibition is all on Imam Hassan, but this painting in particular Is Jesus why what is Jesus doing here? Uh, What's the connection and then she looked at it? She said oh, no, that's Imam Hassan But the artist forgot to put a turban on his head (laughs) Because they copy some of them they copy uh, Christian images she copied it exactly the same (laughs) you know it's a man in a white gown like white dress in a mountain he has a sheep next to him long hair doing this I mean so it was really funny for me that you know to see how probably no one would have understood that because to them everything is Imam Hassan but maybe for an outsider it would be very easily depicted
0: (laughs) yeah no that is uh, that is quite funny and it's also interesting in that you're you know you're talking about uh, an artistic field that's sort of i guess finding itself right now yeah. right like it's a sort of pictorial expression of the lives of saints and stuff based on what you've said it's quite new yeah so it's it by looking at sort of okay well another religion has examples we can look at that and just you know work on that and sort of move that into our own creative expression it's it's a really interesting kind of like a cross-pollination. Yeah, fascinating.
2: Indeed, you will see like in some of the uh, exhibitions, you will see sometimes the same man standing, same Jesus, but just different backgrounds. (laughs) Because this is exactly the same image, but they just put a different background and the title of the painting is different. (laughs) It's fascinating.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, so Nada, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been absolutely fascinating to hear about your research, uh, especially as something sort of so different from any other guest we've had before. So thank you, thank you very much for your time. And uh, <laughs> thank
2: you so much for both of you. It's such a great uh, opportunity and really great experience. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Yeah, so... Uh, Thank you Anna for co-hosting as always. Thank you Georgia and thanks to all of you for listening. It's been Not Safe for Publication. Don't tell your supervisor
0: what you heard here.
1: What (laughs) happens on the podcast stays on the podcast.
0: Not Safe for Publication is a podcast made by and for humanities researchers at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at NSFPPodcast or get in touch with us by email at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom.